Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Bomber here. Lots going on in the world of learning here in November of 2021. I wanted to cover it on the local, the national, and the global level because I think there are three emerging trends to watch that correlate to each of those things. And hopefully there are some connections that we can make between local, national, and global along the way. On the local level, we'll be looking at the suspension of the screening process for gifted and talented programs here in the New York City public school system. It's something that Mayor de Blasio established. He's a bit of a lame duck. We're about to elect a new mayor, but it's unlikely that new mayor will be able to reestablish the exact same structure of a gifted and talented program that begins with a screen of four-year-olds based on a test. This raises a lot of questions around access, inclusion, equity, and really the mission of public schools. David Adams is the CEO of the Urban Assembly. I had a conversation with him about this, among other topics, when he was on the show earlier this year. We'll begin by revisiting a bit of the conversation I had with David as part of today's episode. And we'll also include links to the full episode on the show page for those who want to dive a little bit deeper. Then on the national level, it's early November, which means it's election season. We're going to return to some conversations that I had with Dr. Mark Sanders out of UNC Charlotte, who does a lot of work with civic engagement with incoming students to help them understand both the philosophy of civic engagement, but then also the importance of registering to vote and engaging in civic life in meaningful ways. And then on the same topic of voter engagement, I'm going to go back a few years to a conversation I had with Russell Glass, who's the CEO of Ginger, a mental health app. Russell's been on the show a few times, really interesting thinker in terms of the transformation that's happening around mental health treatment and awareness of the issue and ways in which access to mental health services can be provided through an app. In addition to wearing that hat as the CEO of Ginger, Russell also is the author of a children's book called Voting with a Porpoise. And we had Russell on the show a few years back to talk about his book, why he wrote it, and why looking at the challenges of marine life and figuring out the best ways to work together and to solve collective problems is a great way to introduce children to some of the concepts around voting and civic engagement. And like I said, in the original conversation with Russell, he had me with marine animals. So we'll bring a little bit of that in before concluding with perhaps the biggest trend out there, which is the global trend around the metaverse and augmented reality. Mark Zuckerberg announced the rebranding of Facebook as Meta, the establishment of the metaverse, which is something many folks have been talking about, will become front and center in terms of Facebook's strategic vision for where they're heading next. He got a lot of feedback, both positive and negative, probably a little more negative than not because Facebook has been getting beat up in the press for a number of reasons. It is interesting to think about the implications to learning as the metaverse becomes a little bit more of a reality and whether Facebook is able to execute this or whether it happens in other ways, 
it does feel as though this will be remembered as a watershed moment in terms of augmented reality and virtual reality and the vision for how it will become part of our day-to-day lives. I'll bring in conversations I had with Evan Gappelberg at Nextech AR Solutions and Adarupa Gangali at Prisms of Reality to explore the augmented reality, virtual reality universe that is emerging and how folks are trying to get ahead of what that trend means for learning as the third topic that we're going to hit on today. So quite a bit to cover. We're going to do a lightning round through these themes. If you like what you hear, check out the original episodes, which will be included in the show notes and definitely subscribe to Trending in Education if you enjoy these types of topics and you want to stay on top of what's new and emerging in the world of learning, media, and the future of work. With that, we're going to pick up with the first topic, which is the screening for gifted and talented programs here in New York City, which is emblematic of a conversation that is happening across school systems, really across the U.S. There was a great article in the New York Times recently that will be shared as part of our show notes. At the local level here in New York, outgoing mayor Bill de Blasio has followed through on something he's been talking about for some time, which is to discontinue the screen for talented and gifted programs, beginning with four-year-olds. Something that was pretty striking to me, that we are administering tests to kids that young and that in many ways, that test becomes high stakes in that some kids will get access to specialized curriculum and different schools even and special programs that make it difficult for kids who are not included at an early age to catch up. And that it does beg some questions around the mission of public education. To help me understand this topic, I'm going to bring back a conversation that I had with David Adams, who is the CEO of the Urban Assembly, which is an organization that represents 23 schools here in the New York City area. The schools are developed on a program that combines career readiness with social emotional learning and treats the whole student and is very conscious of including all students rather than looking at the quality of the students who come in. David is focused very much on the quality of the students, the proficiencies of the students, the skills they've developed as they head out into the world beyond the Urban Assembly. Really interesting program. You can check them out at urbanassembly.org. Here's a little bit of sound from my conversation with David to kick off this episode, looking at the screening process in the New York City school system and how the Urban Assembly is adopting a different approach. So I am a David Adams. I am the chief executive officer of the Urban Assembly. We are an organization that is dedicated to the social and economic mobility of young people by improving public education. Uh, we improve public education by ensuring that there is innovation within these public education systems. So that means we've innovated around social and emotional development. We've innovated around college and career pathways. We've innovated with instructional approaches. Uh, I like to say that our schools regularly take in students reading on a second grade level and graduate them uh, proficient. So we are an organization that cares a lot more about our, who our students are when they leave our schools than who they are when they come into our schools, which means we take all of our students. We don't screen, we don't differentiate for who comes into our schools. We know that the quality of our schools is what's important, and that's how we want to spread our message in terms of improving education. 
Yeah, it's a real great mission. One of the things that got some news recently is the issue of screening, which you just touched on and, and how that might relate to the challenges that folks may face getting past some of these screening hurdles. You talked about not necessarily the proficiency, but really more the growth that leads to proficiency as being more what you're about. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. So here at the Urban Assembly, we put our faith in high impact schools. What I mean by that is schools whose organization, whose teaching and learning, whose learning environment impacts students' learning, impacts students' outcomes, impacts students' achievement. So that means our focus is on individualizing supports for students, making sure every student is known that they have an instructional system that is responsive to their strengths and needs, that they are developed not only in their intelligence, but also in their social and emotional competencies, mm. and that they leave our schools, college, career, and community ready, right? We want to put our faith not in who we screen out, but who we let in. Yeah. Uh, we want to think about not gerrymandering our students, but providing a public education for all. Yeah. That if we can show that example, we can start to create incentives to improve public education writ large. When you talk to the mayoral candidates in New York City, they're all talking about, we need more screening, we need more gifted and talented programs. And those programs aren't solving any problems with public education. Yeah. Maybe solving problems for maybe individual uh, children here and there with regards to wanting to be in community with other high achieving kids, right. uh, but they're not solving any problems for the, the education system writ large. And if we want to improve, we got to figure out how we invest in the types of structures that actually grow our students' abilities. So uh, if you look at the numbers at the Urban Assembly, you see the growth rates, you see where students are coming in and in incoming mm -hmm. proficiency, students, where students are leaving and in incoming proficiencies. You see some of our schools, our special education percentage is 42, 43%, still in good standing, mm -hmm. right? still achieving. Yeah. So if you can solve that problem, we can improve public education. And if we can improve public education, we can ensure that the citizens in New York City get the type of education they deserve, not just one that caters to less than 1% of the population. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I have a lot of conversations about the benefits of diversity in a workplace, as an example, and even the concept of neurodiversity, where you want to have people with different cognitive frameworks and different experiences because in the aggregate, you're going to benefit from the diversity of thought that fosters, aside from it just being the right thing to do. It is interesting that in the case of these gifted and talented programs, it's more focused on over-indexing on this one criteria. Great stuff there with David Adams. We'll include a link to the full episode as part of the show notes. David's been on the show a couple times. Really interesting thinker. He's also quite involved with CASEL. CASEL is the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. It's the nation's leading organization advancing the development of academic, social, and emotional competence for all students. As you know, if you listen to the show regularly, I get social, emotional, baby. And I get a little bit social, emotional when I talk about the work that David's doing, again, as the, the parent of a young child who's approaching that age four rapidly. My son has entered Universal 3K here in New York and relatively near on the horizon would be the test had it not been suspended by Mayor de Blasio. There is an election coming up this week and it looks like no matter who is elected, the screening process was suspended. The test that was administered to four-year-olds was suspended due to the pandemic. It's now been held back another year due to this policy change by Mayor de Blasio and Chancellor Misha Ross-Porter. 
it's unlikely that it will be reestablished in its current capacity, even if the likely winner in Eric Adams chooses to reestablish gifted and talented programs in some capacity, whether they're based on a screening test, whether that test begins at age four, and whether programs can be developed that are applicable to all schools rather than just a select few is a really fundamental question that we'll be grappling with here in New York. We'll be looking at it more broadly and we'll be continuing to track here on Trending in Education. At the national level, it's early November, which means it's right about election day. And even though it's 2021, so a lot of the national elections and statewide elections are perhaps less front and center, it's still an opportunity to think about what voting means and what civic engagement means. Whenever I've tried to grapple with these topics in the past, I've relied on the support of folks like Dr. Mark Sanders, who's a philosophy professor at UNC Charlotte. Mark's done a lot of work with his students and with faculty networks across the country to help get folks activated in terms of civic engagement, understand the philosophical underpinnings of that, and then also understand how to connect some of the more abstract concepts of philosophy and political science to the real lived experience of young folks and really all of us as we try to understand what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be engaged in civic life? How does that relate to voting and how does that extend beyond voting? Here's a little bit of sound from Dr. Sanders to get some of his perspective on this. I arrived at this point, particularly in terms of engaging with student voters in an odd way, in the sense that when I was in college, I didn't vote. And I was, in fact, somewhat vocal about not voting. And I think context at times changed things. You could talk about the electoral college and what vote you're in and so on and so forth. But I just have come as a college professor to understand the importance of student engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, and voting is a big part of that. It's not the only part. There are a lot of other things involved in that. So when I got to UNC Charlotte, I got involved in the community engagement aspect of um, education. And that's bigger than just in terms of student voting, but that was one of the, uh, the subsets. What, what got me there was my general interest in bridging the, the, the divide between the academy and the outside world, the world which which we are ensconced. Yeah. And a lot of interesting things are going on there. Community-involved projects, experiential learning, very influenced uh, by John Dewey for me in, mm -hmm. in going into that area. And then within that, I, I became very involved in what's called the 49er Democracy Experience, which started back when Charlotte had the DNC uh, a long time ago. And I've become increasingly uh, involved in it. It's a large organization. We try to involve students in various range and faculty administrators in engagement around student voting. The latest iteration of this has been, I've also become involved in an organization called the Faculty Network for Student Voting Rights. Also known as uh, FACNET. I as FACNET for short, yes. Yeah. And that's an organization that's nationwide. It's for faculty to help them understand what they can be doing to engage and educate students uh, on their voting rights, really. Mm. And so that I've just gotten involved in this past summer. Mm. And while we are really focused right now, laser focused on the 2020 election, it's important to keep in mind that 
the work of student engagement, of citizen engagement in general, continues beyond uh, this particular election. We'll include a link to the conversation with Mark on the show page for this episode. This was in November of 2020, last year. So that obviously was an important political moment in our society. So that very much was top of mind. But we also dove into what's the best way to frame the conversation, to engage with rising generations as they're trying to wrap their heads around how they best engage in civic life. How do they think about voting and beyond? Here's a little bit more from my conversation with Mark from last year. Yeah, so it's been interesting time again for all of us, no matter what you are doing, it's an interesting time for all, for everybody. And it's interesting because I've always known that students are not all just 18 to 21 year olds on a college campus with, uh, yeah. I've known for a while that they, they have jobs and some of them have kids, but going rem remote or hybrid, but mostly uh, remote for us, it's become much more clear when, when you see people with their kids in the, the Zoom that, that you're having or giving or talking about why they can't make this, the Zoom meeting and they go into the, the details of their jobs and so forth. So with the pandemic has really brought into focus uh, a lot of those issues. And so I have been like everybody else struggling to grapple with all of the, of these things, but also really inspired by the dedication of these students. Yeah, I'm an eating with students every week and the effort that they're putting forth with the uncertainty. So we, we started planning things back in the, the summer when it was still like, who knows what September, October is going to go down. Yeah. Like, and so they had to plan for things, maybe in person and maybe online. And yeah, they've just rolled with it. And yeah, uh, students at USC Charlotte students all across the country have pulled off all kinds of virtual events to get out student, student voting. Mm -hmm. And they've really thought about everything from basic information of where to vote, how to vote, things like that. To there was a huge movement to get student poll workers because typically poll workers are older. They're going to be most susceptible to COVID and yes. they're still in need in some places, mostly rural places, but like Charlotte had more than they could handle from mm -hmm. people applying to be uh, poll workers. And that's yeah. been, um, all, the case of a, a lot of places. Again, my takeaway is that I've been in, inspired by how involved they have and how creative they have been in pulling some of this off. Fantastic stuff there with Mark. A uh, regular guest on the show will include links to his episodes if you like what you're hearing there. This was talking a little more about adults entering higher ed, young adults who were trying to understand their civic role heading into election season. We also talked about how to educate younger kids, much younger, in fact, and that led to the conversation with Russell Glass about his book, Voting with a Porpoise. One of the shows I really enjoyed doing in recent years, perhaps this foreshadowed my approaching parenthood, but we had a really interesting conversation with Russell Glass about what led him to write this book. It's also an interesting window into how we all contain multitudes. And even if you are the CEO of a mental health company, you can also extend yourself and apply yourself in other ways to engage young people and their families in the importance of voting and civic engagement. Let's pick up a little bit with the interview with Russell here. Yeah, a funny way to get to a children's book author, but I'm a multiple-time entrepreneur. I, I graduated uh, from Duke University and went right into technology, a company called Trilogy Software, and 
There's a very entrepreneurial company down in Austin, Texas, have founded or been a part of now five founding teams. And last company I sold uh, to LinkedIn after founding it and building it up over about six years or so and ran the marketing solutions division of LinkedIn. Had a great time, went through the whole acquisition of Microsoft, uh, buying Microsoft of LinkedIn. It was a ton of fun, great experience. Took, took a bunch of time off after that just to be dad. I have three small kids. During that process, it was the Trump election. I had concerns about the way the government was running. And I started to think about what I could do, what talents I had as small as they might be to try to change the culture around voting. And that's what led to a number of activities, including writing Voting with a Porpoise. It's an inspirational story on a number of fronts, but it does also seem like this is a trend around authoring books in support of not-for-profits or causes. The content itself is helping parents talk to their kids about the importance of voting and civics and some of these other things, but also the proceeds are, are ultimately in support of that cause as well. Yeah, I know that's right. So the idea here wasn't to make any kind of profit. The thought was, hey, if we can make some money on this, that's a great additional way to support nonprofit voting related causes, right? How do we increase the voting rate of the country? And the reason for the book, the reason for targeting children at this age, there are multiple reasons for it. One is when I looked at what was wrong with the country, I actually honed in on low voting rates as being a huge part of the problem we face. Let's just, you know, use a hypothetical. If you had a hundred percent people in the country voting, money in politics goes away because money is basically in effect buying votes today. You have a little bit of influence, but mostly it's just getting people to show up for your candidates. Two is all of a sudden you have a democracy that truly works because the majority of people that vote for something will win. Today, a small fraction of the active population actually decides what's best for the rest of the country because our voting rates are so low. And in thinking through all that, I, I had a number of strategies on how to drive voting rates up. One of them, I joined the board of Rock the Vote because I think they're doing a great job with youth voting and, and focusing on the millennial and under the voting population. But there's still a narrative problem. There's still a people don't feel civically involved. Mm -hmm. And I felt like starting younger giving some education to kids when they're three, four, five, six, seven years old and getting them excited about, hey, why do we vote? Why is voting important as a society? How do we make good decisions as a society? If we start them younger and they're thinking that way, they're going to be excited to vote when they're eligible. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what this is all about. Yeah, for sure. And, and also, I, I imagine as a serial entrepreneur, you've been able to make things happen from zero to success. How did that inform writing this book? And how is writing a children's book similar or different from launching a small business or a big business? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, great question. I think <laughs> in all candor, I think part of it is I don't have that it's impossible to do G. So I think as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of a suspending of disbelief, right? You have to plow through all of that. The odds are against you. You have to plow through the, the pessimism and you just keep going. And if you're lucky, if you, if you have some bounces that go your way, to use a March Madness analogy, you can be very successful in changing the world in some way. And, and I think so. So 
that's one is that as an entrepreneur, you, you just believe it can happen. And the notion that we'll get one of these books in every single library and every single classroom in the country on the basis of it is crazy. But you start with a book, you start with a concept, and then you just keep doing things like podcasts and maybe eventually you get there. Great stuff there with Russell, who is not just a serial entrepreneur. He's also a serial guest on Trending in Education. Three different episodes with Russell, one about voting rights and voting with purpose, and then a couple on some of the vision and mission of Ginger, which is a mental health app, picking up on that massive trend around mental health and self-discovery, self-improvement, and how to get out ahead of some of the the, the crises that existed prior to the pandemic that have really just been exacerbated by it. We'll include some links to Russell's contribution to Trending in Ed over the years. As we round the turn and head towards conclusion here, I wanted to get a little bit of sound in from our contributors to the metaverse who have been on Trending in Ed talking about how learning is being transformed by new and emerging media, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality. We're going to pick up with some quick sound from Evan Gappelberg and Adarupa Gangali before we conclude here to get a little bit of a taste of what we've discussed on several of our episodes of Trending in Ed with folks who are really trying to get out ahead of this massive metaverse trend that Facebook is tapping into and think about it specifically in terms of the learning implications We'll also include a link to a nice summary from EdSurge about Facebook's transition and how it wants to pull education into its metaverse. More to come there, as this is a massive undertaking by Facebook. The jury is a little bit out on the metaverse. Some of us are likening it to Second Life, which was not enormously successful in the early 2000s. Perhaps things have changed. Perhaps Facebook will help lead this transformation. But let's pick up first with Evan Gappelberg. Evan is the CEO of Next Tech AR Solutions. Had him on a little while back where he was talking about this massive mega trend of augmented reality, which presaged some of what we're seeing now from Facebook. Let's hear a little bit of Evan's contribution right here. Think about the kid in grade school. Do you remember the woolly mammoth? Yeah. I remember the woolly mammoth. I remember, oh my God, like yeah. dirt in the ice for yeah. millennia. Sure. All of a sudden they find this woolly mammoth, the elephant, like hairy elephant with the dust. So I was able to see it in my mind's eye. Mm -hmm. It kind of creative in that yeah. way. Right. But imagine being able to put that woolly mammoth in yeah. the classroom with the kids, right? there it's no longer in my mind it's in the classroom and, and i'm learning and it's sticking to my brain because that's right. how we learn right right storytelling and sure. you, you can even just go to the constitution in the united states right you want to see that yeah it, you could literally be seeing a virtual version of it every student can yeah. have it at yeah. their desk and the teacher's teaching you about the constitution mm -hmm. i remember it very little about what I learned in school because the teacher's going through the motion. Yeah. There's 30, 40, 50 kids in a class. Like how much can they really teach you? How much right. sticks, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like this solves a lot of that problem where yeah. the students actually are going to be interested and they're interacting and it's immersive and yeah. it's sticky. 
Yeah. And it's a better way of learning. It's like the evolution yes. of learning. Great stuff there with Evan. I have had the opportunity to talk to several CEOs, Evan being one of them. Steve Grubbs from Victory XR is another one. And then Anaruba Gangly is a third, where each of them is at the forefront of some of the innovation that's happening around the learning metaverse. I'd be curious to get their takes on what Facebook's doing and how that might impact their business and what's going on on that front. So this is a trend we'll continue to track. As we head towards conclusion, I want to get a little more sound in from Adarupa, who's doing some fascinating work at a company called Prisms of Reality, helping K-12 educators teach algebra and other concepts in ways that help students understand more quickly leveraging the new and emerging technology of virtual reality. Let's pick up a bit here with Anarupa setting the foundation as to why virtual reality is becoming more of a realistic solution to integrate into K-12 education. I think that there are three big things that have happened recently. One is the one that we all know about, which is price points are coming down, that they're becoming increasingly more affordable, especially with hardware like the Oculus Quest 2, which is yep. $299 for a headset. You also have just the advances in, in software techniques and the high fidelity and the graphics and a much more natural and authentic environment for a student to truly suspend disbelief versus some of the environments that just always felt a little bit too cartoony to feel real or, or take seriously from a, a student's perspective. And then you got to this in, in what you were saying, which was that learning design. The research is quite nascent in how to modulate the different affordances of virtual reality. You have so much to play with now, right? Yeah. You have immersive soundscape, you have all the movement, you have the tactile design, you have the visual design. And all of these things in concert work together to deliver this pedagogy that I'm talking about, where you yeah. experience something, you have an emotional response, you then have a strategic sequence of tasks that help you connect that physical experience to mathematical models. Hmm. And it's not as simple as throwing you in the experience and then having you create a model. It's right. much more nuanced than that. It requires a lot of iteration and research and co-design with schools and districts and mm -hmm. teacher input. And I feel like that work really hasn't been able to take off until recently, where you have content developers really focusing in on and saying, if we want to operationalize this medium in schools, we have to have a highly interdisciplinary team with really strong co-design partnerships with school districts, where every step of the way, we're really iterating and using feedback from kids to make this medium work. And so our students, when they first put the headset on, they're in a food hall and there's a mayor's announcement and it's, oh gosh, there's a state of emergency. The, our community is on lockdown and I now get to experience what sort of everyday activities lead to that. So I'm not talking about any numbers. I'm not telling you wear masks. I'm not telling you use hand attachment. I'm just saying you're in a food hall. When that person touched this person, when they walked over, when they did this, when you did this, these are the consequences of your actions. So what happens there, Mike, is that you're developing a really informal understanding of the mathematical pattern. I want the students to feel exponential functions before they've learned that word, hmm. before there's any jargon thrown at them. Mm -hmm. Then once they have that kind of informal understanding of that growth where they saw one person spread it to 10 people hmm. through these series of behaviors and actions, they then go into this high-tech virtual lab environment, which is also by design. I think that a lot of our students have always told me, Ms. Gongli, everyone tells us that education is so important and yet our schools look like prisons, right? Hmm. So a big part of it is giving them a sense of professionalism, being in a really advanced tech lab, 
And so they're in there, Mike, and what they do is they say, okay, I'm going to now take my experiences, look at some simulations, really begin to map what I saw to growth patterns under different containment protocols, no precautions, social distancing while wearing masks, Mm -hmm. and then taking that and slowly moving to tables and then graphs. So you go from that 3D to 2D, and then finally, when you have that intuition, you then go to 1D. What our kids usually do is we jump them to the 1D, to the equation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that equation is just divorced. Like, where did it come from? Why'd you choose? Why'd you right. choose? There's so many questions. And what kids usually do is they just shut up because you're in a 45-minute instructional episode. Mm-hmm. Who has time for all of my questions? And so you get into this knee-jerk of memorization. Really great stuff there in the conversation with Anarupa as well as with Evan about some of these new and emerging technologies. Also, the conversations with Steve Grubbs from Victory XR. It's a trend we're going to continue to track. It looks like one that will be front and center in terms of the collective imagination, in part because Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook is helping us focus there. But also, in some ways, this trend has been building for some time, and perhaps the time is right. Who knows? We'll continue to track it. Let us know what you think. And with that, we'll bring this episode of Trending in Education to its conclusion, running the gambit from the local level, thinking about gifted and talented screens for elementary school students, for for four-year-olds, all the way through the life course to civic engagement, voting engagement, and then this massive trend around new media, augmented reality, virtual reality, and the metaverse. Thanks again to all the amazing guests we've had, the ones featured on this show, David Adams, Dr. Mark Sanders, Russell Glass, Evan Gappelberg, and Anaruba Gangali, just a sampling of the types of amazing minds who are thinking about the future of learning, who we're getting access to on the show. If you have suggestions as far as other guests or topics that you want us to cover on the show, please reach out to us with your ideas or suggestions. We're reachable at Trending in Ed on Twitter, or you can also find me, Michael Palmer, on LinkedIn. Love to hear from our listeners if you have suggestions or even if you'd like to be a guest. These are the type of trends that really excite us here at Trending in Education. Hopefully they excite you as well. We're here at least once a week, frequently twice a week. Hopefully you're enjoying what you're hearing. If you do, write us a review, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. 